0: All right, well, I invite you to take your Bibles, turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon text this morning, as we draw towards the end of our series in Isaiah 40 to 55. This morning, we're in Isaiah chapter 54, Isaiah 54. Last week, we saw in chapter 53, perhaps one of the most famous passages in The Old Testament, the suffering servant, the fourth of those four servant songs, where the Messiah, God in the flesh, comes and does for us what only He can do, redeems us from our sin, saves us by His own death, and by His wounds we're healed. God takes all of our sin, puts it on Him, and we get His righteousness. By grace alone, through faith alone. A magnificent prophecy fulfilled in Christ. And now we get for in 54 and 55, what comes out of that? What comes out of that? In 54, we'll look at this morning, we'll see the immediate fruit of that is the church. The church is born from... What happens in 53. And then in 55, as we'll see next week, we get the magnificent promises of the gospel proclaimed far and wide, and ultimately we get a whole new creation. So that's where we're going. This morning we're in 54, and I'm going to read for us uh, verses 4 through 10. So I ask you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. We'll read Isaiah 54, verses 4 through 10. This is God's holy word for us, His people. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with Everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This is God's holy, powerful, life-giving word for us, His people today. Let's ask him to bless our time in this word. Father, as we have now read, we pray that you would bless the reading of this word. And now, Lord, bless the preaching of this word. And may the things that come from my feeble, small, weak voice, may they sound forth as what they really are. When your word is proclaimed faithfully and truly, the preaching of the word is indeed the very word of God itself. So may I vanish and disappear and get no glory and no reputation. May I be overshadowed and forgotten. And may it just be our Lord that we see today. Open up our eyes as we open up this word and write this truth upon our hearts. And may it change us today for the glory of your name through Christ we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. In the early church, there is a very famous church father named Saint Cyprian. Saint Cyprian Latin-speaking, one of the very earliest Latin-speaking church fathers. Many of them spoke Greek. Cyprian's a Latin-speaking church father. He was a bishop in North Africa and one of the great fathers of the third century. He died as a martyr for Christ. According to Cyprian, Well, let me back up. Cyprian is famous for a few things. One of the things, obviously, his martyrdom makes him quite notable. But one of the things he's famous for in the history of theology is his doctrine of the church. His doctrine of the nature of the church. And according to Cyprian, the relationship between the individual Christian and the Trinity is mediated by the Christian's relationship to the church. For Cyprian, the institution of the church is like one great big sacrament. It is a means of grace, a channel through which divine life and power and blessing and the benefits of Christ flows and by which those things are ministered to or dispensed to the individual believing soul. And also, Cyprian said, the church is like an access point to heaven. It's like, a, it's like a tabernacle or a meeting house or a home where we experience God, where we have union and communion with Him, where we can touch the divine, where we can receive the care and nurture and healing that our sin-sick souls so desperately need. And Cyprian famously stated these doctrines in two statements, two sentences that have survived to this day in the history of theology. They're very famous. Maybe you've heard them, maybe not, but here they are. Statement number one. Cyprian says, Outside the church, there is no salvation. Outside the church, apart from the church, without the church, there is no salvation salvation and his second statement is this no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother two catchy little things Cyprian said that have become very famous now maybe your first thought when you hear that the church is a big sacrament the church dispenses God's grace the outside the church you can't be saved Uh, you got to have the church as your mother if you're going to have God as your father. Man, that sounds Catholic. <laughs> that's my first thought when I first read this. I'm like, man, that is, that's very Catholic sounding. And, and you're right, it is. That's, that's, that's Catholic stuff from the third century. That doesn't sound very Reformed. We're Protestants, we're Presbyterians, for crying out loud. That doesn't sound, no, 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 no. That makes me nervous. Well, it's not just Catholic. Capital C, it's Catholic lowercase C, meaning universal. It's actually this is the this is Protestant stuff too. John Calvin himself quotes these two statements with approval. And if it's good enough for Calvin, no, (laughs) then it's at least good enough to be part of the Reformed tradition. Doesn't mean it's true. But Calvin does quote these two things and says, yeah, Cyprian got this right. Now maybe, maybe in Roman Catholicism it's explained a little different. Maybe for the Reform, it's got to be explained a little different. That's fine. But fundamentally, these are two statements Calvin agrees with that the Reformed tradition agrees with. And there's a good reason for that. The Old Testament background of these ideas comes from our passage this morning in Isaiah 54. In verses 1 through 3, The church is prophetically described as our mother. Verses 4 through 10, the portion that I read, the church is prophetically depicted as a bride. And the last section of the chapter, verses 11 to 17, the church is prophetically pictured as a family. God's family. The family of God. And here we have, in this chapter, a doctrine of the church as mother, bride, and family. Three pictures. And your relationship, Christian, your relationship with this mother, bride, and family will determine your relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, the church is a big deal. The church is a huge deal. It's instituted by Jesus. It's the thing he's building. Matthew 16. I will build my church. So this is an important thing that Jesus really cares about. His church. And Isaiah prophesies hundreds of years before Christ comes that the church will be mother, bride, and family for the people of God. So this is where we're going today. We're going to look at Isaiah's doctrine of the church and apply these things to ourselves. So we're just going to go in that order, those three sections. Number 1, verses 1 through 3. The church as mother. Isaiah speaks throughout this chapter of the restoration and future glory of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. That's what he's specifically referring to. And as the capital city, Jerusalem's restoration and future glory means restoration and future glory for all of Israel and all of God's people. It's a a literary device that's called a synecdoche. A synecdoche. And you've, you, maybe you haven't heard that word, but you, 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 we all talk this way. It's where you use a part of something to refer to the whole thing. It's like if one of you had a new car and after church you were showing it off in the parking lot and somebody walked up and said, man, that's a nice set of wheels. It'd be really weird if you responded, gee, thanks, what do you think of the rest of it? Okay, you realize he's not, he doesn't mean just the four-wheel. He means the whole car. He's using a part of the car to refer to the whole thing. That's all that is, a synecdoche, using a part to refer to the whole. And this is sort of what's happening here. He's talking about Jerusalem's future glory and restoration, but he means all of Israel. He's using the part to say the whole thing. All Israel will be restored to glory. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus and the apostles apply this very chapter more than once. This very chapter that's about Jerusalem and Israel, they apply this to the church under the new covenant. In other words, Jesus and the apostles read a passage in the Old Testament that's about Israel and Jerusalem, and they say, yep, that's us, the church. Yep, that's you, (laughs) Jews and Gentiles together in one body. This is how Jesus and the apostles read scripture. And so this is how we shall read scripture too. We will follow their example. And that's how we're going to handle this passage as well. This is fulfilled ultimately, not just in an earthly city over in the Middle East. This is fulfilled at the Forks. This is fulfilled by you this morning. And I've said this multiple times in this series. I bet you didn't know that when you came to church this morning, you'd be fulfilling scripture. You'd be fulfilling prophecy. But here you are, and you're fulfilling it. So, here's how we're going to handle this passage. What's happening is, in verses 1 through 3, church as mother. In verses 1 through 3, the prophet is comparing Israel, and therefore the church, to Sarah. The wife of Abraham, way back in Genesis. Look at verse 1. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So in verse 1 here, if you remember, Sarah and Abraham had no kids. No children. And Sarah is far beyond the age to have any children by the time Abraham and Sarah get to the promised land by the time they get to Canaan and then the angel you know the angels show up and they say you know you're Abraham you're gonna have a son he's like yeah yeah it's Ishmael me and Hagar took care of that and he says no 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 you and Sarah are gonna have a son and then you know and they both laugh and that's why Isaac gets his name because it means laughter it means when they were told Sarah's gonna have a son and she cracked up laughing in the tent and the angel said just for that we're gonna call him laughter Just to make a point. Every time you say his name, you'll remember you laughed at me. (laughs) And joke's on you. (laughs) Alright? So that's what's happening in Genesis. Abraham uh, Abraham was too old to father anybody. Sarah was too old to bear children. And yet she's told, you're going to have a son named Isaac. And through Isaac, these multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people are going to come. And that's why he's saying, sing, O barren one, you who did not bear. Break forth into singing, you who have not been in labor. You're going to have more kids than the, than the one who isn't barren and the one who's married. You're going to have more. Now that was, Ab- that was Abraham and Sarah. And here it's Jerusalem's being told, you're going to be like Sarah. Your children will outnumber Those multitudes you had before. Because here, Jerusalem is barren because it's been destroyed, demolished, temple gone, walls broken, city sacked, pillaged, ruined. It's desolate. And he's saying, no, no, no. Your children, once you come back from exile, are going to be more than you ever could have counted before. You'll be more fruitful when you get back from exile than you were before. In verse 2, look at verse 2. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. He's referring to the tent that they had to set up. And he's saying, look, you're going to have to pull up your stakes and stretch that sucker as far as you can because you're going to have so many people in your tent, you're not going to have room for them all. Enlarge your boundaries. Stretch out because you're going to have a multitude in your tent, in your house, in your family. And then verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Sarah is going to be like Abraham. Abraham is the father of many nations. And here Sarah is going to be the mother of many nations. Your offspring shall possess the nations. Now, we know in Abraham, in your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed means Christ. The offspring of Abraham will be Jesus. And in him, the blessings promised to Abraham get dispersed to all the nations. Every Gentile, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who comes to Jesus gets in on this promise. And now we're seeing the promise to Sarah is extended as well. Here Jerusalem being compared to Sarah, and she's told, your offspring will possess the nations. Christ will possess the nations. And by coming to Christ, you are going to be the mother of of many nations. So that's Isaiah prophesying this. The Apostle Paul quotes verse 1 directly in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 4. He refers to the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, Sarah's slave girl. And Remember, Abraham and, and Hagar have Ishmael, and they think Ishmael is going to inherit the covenant and the promises and the blessings, and it's going to be the God of Abraham, Ishmael, and whoever his descendants are. God has other plans. He gives them Isaac, and now there's this rivalry between them. One's the firstborn. He ought to get the promises, but the younger one's going to get the promises, the one from the other woman. So this is causing all sorts of problems. And Paul picks up this story and he says, look, this is a picture of the church. This is a picture of the church. He says in Galatians 4, 26, the Jerusalem above is free. This earthly Jerusalem, he says, is in bondage. Meaning Jerusalem, political Israel, the Jewish people are in bondage today. But the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. Uh, and it says, and she is our mother. And then he quotes Isaiah 54, 1. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear, etc. And then in verse 20, uh, in verse 31, he says, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, Hagar, like Ishmael, but of the free woman, Sarah. So, this is what Paul says. Paul looks at Isaiah 54 and he says, This is talking about the church. This is talking about Sarah and Jerusalem that's above, a heavenly Jerusalem. This is fulfilled in the church. The church is the mother of us all, Paul says. The Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the church. And so the church, if Paul's right about this, the church must be your mother. If God is going to be your father. We're like Isaac. We're children of promise. We belong to the heavenly Jerusalem. We belong to the fulfillment of this prophecy. We belong to the offspring of Abraham and Sarah. The church, the Jerusalem above, is our Mother, Paul says, got that straight from Isaiah fifty-four, one to three. So church is mother. Second point, verses four to ten. The church as a bride. If you read verse one again, and you think, okay, rejoice, sing, O barren one, rejoice, you who've not been in labor. You are desolate and you're unmarried, so the natural question would be just like Mary when the angel comes to her and Luke and says, "Okay, I'm going to have a son. I don't know if you know how this works, but I have never been with anyone. So how am I going to have kids, Mister Angel?" <laughs> right? She's very confused. I, I'm not married. I'm a virgin. How how was this going to happen? And we should be asking the same thing here. Where are all these children going to come from? How is this barren one who's unmarried going to have all these multitudes of children? Well, the answer is in verses 4 through 10. The church is going to be so fruitful and have so many children because she is the bride of the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. You will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no no more. Why? Verse 5. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. So she's going to be fruitful and multiply and have these descendants because God takes the people of God to be his bride. God then renews his vows with his people, with his bride. In verses 6 to 8, you see that. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Verse 7, for a brief moment I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. That's referring to the exile, right? The people are invaded by the Babylonians. They're conquered and they're dispersed. And that's why they have to be gathered. And that gathering is God going out and finding his bride and bringing her back to him. He didn't get rid of her because he's a bad guy and he just didn't like her and no, She was unfaithful time and time and time and time again. And no matter what he said, no matter how many prophets, no matter what he did, they just wouldn't stop going after idols, other gods, being unfaithful, spiritual adultery. They just wouldn't stop. And so finally he said, okay, exile. But that was not permanent because his heart was still with her. And though she has sinned and sinned and sinned herself into oblivion, he still longs for her and loves her. He says, for a brief moment, I deserted you. Yep, I sure did. But with great compassion, I will gather you. I'll bring you back in overflowing anger. For a moment, for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your God. He renews his vows with his bride. He goes after her to bring her back to himself. In spite of all the unfaithfulness, all of the sin, he still longs for her. In verses 9 and 10, he compares it to the days of Noah He says, just like back in the days of Noah, when I swore a covenant promise, I will never flood the earth again. So I have sworn, into verse 9, that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. You imagine. I mean, just as if God could go back on the rainbow promise and flood the earth again, then he would go back on his promise to his people. Never To be at wrath at you again. Just as immutable and inviolable is his covenant promise. To never flood the earth again. So immutable and inviolable. Is his promise. To never. Be wrathful or angry at his people ever again. No condemnation for those are in Christ Jesus, we're told. Romans 8, 1. It's because he has sworn, solemnly sworn, eternal peace with you. I will not be angry with you. Verse 10, the mountains might depart, the hills might be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace, there's the covenant vows being renewed. My covenant of peace, not anger, not wrath, not judgment, not condemnation, peace. Shalom. Full, eternal peace. Not a ceasefire, not a truce, peace. Says the Lord who has compassion on you. And ultimately, we know that this is not just a prophecy between God and Israel, this is fulfilled with Christ and his love for his bride, the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And that's why we read in Ephesians chapter 5 that Christ and the church is a picture of the way our marriages ought to be. And he says in verse 25, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives. How? The same way Christ loved the church. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Jesus loves his church. He went to the cross and bled and died. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. For her life, he died. He moved heaven and earth to gather his bride, to have his people, to love his church. He nourishes and cherishes the church because he wants that that, that renewed vows, that covenant ceremony, that... Wedding where they renew their vows. He wants her to be there in a spotless robe of righteousness without spot or blemish or wrinkle or anything. Perfect in splendor, holy and blameless. He's so jealous for that. He's so zealous for His people. He loves His church. In Isaiah 54, God swearing Himself eternally, relentlessly in love to His bride... Is fulfilled when Christ comes and He hangs on that tree to wipe away all her sin and bring her back to Him. And that's not just Israel and the Jews, it's for all the nations. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation, whoever comes to Christ, finds Him to be a relentless Savior of infinite, never-failing love. And so... You must belong to the church, the bride, if you want to belong to Christ, the husband. Outside this church, there is no salvation because it's the church he bled and died for. So if you want to get in on that love and that bleeding for salvation, you want to get in on the saving work of Jesus, you better be part of the bride. You better be connected to the one he died for. Outside this church, this church Jesus saves perfectly forever, there's no salvation. You think about the picture I like to use is, is uh, the planets orbiting the sun. If you want to be in the saving orbit of Christ, that orbit is the church. point three okay so we have a bride reunited to her lord her husband and blessed with a multitude of children who possess the very nations what do you call that a bride with a husband and kids wife husband and kids what do you call that that sounds like a family I mean I've been a part of one for a while that's how mine is that sounds like a family family Mother, bride, and now family. The family of God, or as verse 17 calls it, the heritage of the servants of the Lord. I just shortened it for point three to the heritage of the Lord. The language of verses 11 and 12. Let's read 11 and 12. Oh, afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, Behold, I will set your stones in antinomy and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. Okay, so this is a prophecy that God is going to rebuild Jerusalem, restore the city and the temple, and he's going to do it with these precious stones. Now, what's going on here? Well, this language of 11 and 12 is picked up by the book of Revelation and applied to the church. And it's applied to the church at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 21. Now, we've read this before. I've read chapter tw- parts of chapter 21 a couple of weeks ago. But in chapter 21, here's this description in verse... Uh, verses... 18 and 19 it says the wall speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem the new Jerusalem the wall was built of Jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel the first was Jasper the second Sapphire the third agate The fourth emerald, and it goes on through a bunch of other stones, but that agate and jasper, these are words, sapphires, these are words that were used back here in Isaiah 54. And now that language is being applied to the new Jerusalem. You know, and we read this section, we talk about, well, the city, you know, the streets of gold and the gates of pearl, and everybody thinks that's heaven. He's not describing heaven. And you know he's not because he calls it the bride of Christ. And that's not heaven. Jesus didn't die for heaven. He died for his bride, the church. So Revelation 21.1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And then a little later in verse 9, an angel speaks to John and says, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We all know that's the church. The bride of Christ is the church. Come and I'll show you. I'll show you the bride. You want to see the bride? The wife of the lamb? Come here, I'll show you. In verse 10, He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. So Revelation 21 is a picture of the church in its ultimate final glorified state. But it's not a picture of heaven. We've just we've just have we got that from somewhere else. I don't know where we got that culture, funerals, I don't know, but pearly pearly gates jokes maybe. Streets of gold. I mean, we just we we just assume we know what that means. And we don't know what that means. <laughs> Because it's not describing what heaven is like. I hate to disappoint you. (laughs) It's describing the final glorified state of the church. The heavenly Jerusalem. The Jerusalem that's above, Paul says. Who is our mother. Who's the bride of Christ. Who's the holy city. All this stuff gets fulfilled in Christ and in the church. And ultimately in the age to come. The new heavens and new earth. Which means, heaven's going to be way better than this. Because this is just describing us. <laughs> the church. Heaven's going to be way better than a street of gold. You're not going to give one wonder about gold when you get there, by the way. You're going to have Christ. Gold's going to be trinkets. Gates of pearl, yeah, that's nice. Where's Jesus? Right? Heaven's going to be way better than we can imagine. We don't... And so, okay, we lose this description of heaven. Big deal. Big deal. It's describing what we're going to be like... Because heaven and earth reunite in Jesus, right? He's God and man. Heaven and earth unite in Jesus. Just like in the temple, God's presence dwells in a, in a man-made house. Heaven and earth unite, connect. That access point was the temple in the Old Testament. It's Jesus for us. And one day, actual heaven and actual earth, won't, it won't be way up there and way over here, they will be one, reconciled in Christ. Heaven and earth shall be reunited and God will dwell on earth with us in a new heavens and a new earth. And so what the church is will describe the whole cosmos. Glorified, perfect, majestic, eternal, spotless, sinless, deathless, painless, and tearless. That's where we're going. But we're already part of that in a small foretaste kind of way right now. You're already a citizen of that city. The eyes of faith can already see those streets of gold now. But the world can't see it. just looks like, we just look like everybody else. With the eyes of faith, we don't see what we're doing here this morning as just some piddly little thing that you do once a week No, we see what we're doing here in this church, in this local church at The Forks, as we're walking on these streets. We're meeting with God. We're in the holy place with Him. The church is a big deal. The thing is, for too long we've thought the church is just a a country club or a hangout or that place where I go to get free food and... Church is something so much more than that. And we miss out when we're not fully plugged in. We miss out when we refuse to participate in the heavenly life of the church. So let me close. Let me close this way. If you are a professing believer, if you are a member of a local church... This one, or if you're visiting some other one. If you are a believer, a professing believer, you've confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, and you're a member of the local church, you are part of this family. You're a part of the family of God, the heritage of the servants of the Lord. You and your children, verse 13. The question is, you might be in the family but have you been born again? See, it's possible to have a connection with the church and miss out on a saving union with Jesus. It's possible to be in a church for your whole life and to sit in the pew and come to worship and hear the songs and pray the prayers and listen to the gospel and fellowship and tithe and give and serve. It's possible to do all those things and yet miss out on Jesus because none of those things actually end up saving you. And none of those things actually end up earning anything from God. The question is, you can be a member of the family, but have you been born again? Are you not just in some external, visible way connected to the church, but down on the inside, are you you bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh? Have you been united to Jesus by being born again? Not just an external member of the family, but one on the inside. Do you have the DNA of a family member on the inside? Have you been born again? External connection to the church doesn't save anybody. So when you hear, outside the church no one can be saved, don't think that, oh, I'm just saved by being a church member. That's the wrong message. I ain't preaching that. <laughs> I'm saying you must be born again. You must belong to the people of God on the inside, not just on the outside. Second thing I want to say as we close, I have three closing, closing things. That's number one. The second thing... I want you to consider Are you joined to Christ? Are you joined to Christ? Have you come into a saving union with Him? Not just joined to the church, but are you a part of that bride? In other words, if you're, if you're joined to Christ, if you're in that marriage union with Jesus, that means you love him and he loves you and everything you have becomes his and everything he has becomes yours. Do you know yourself to be in that saving union with Jesus? Do you have that relationship with Jesus? Not just the one that says, I go to church, but the one that says, I know him and love him. He is my treasure. He is my heart. He is my soul. You read the Song of Solomon and just turn that into a big parable of your love for Jesus and his love for you. I am yours and he is mine. Not just are you a member of the bride, but are you? Do you have that relationship? that the bride has with the husband yourself, individually. Outside the church there is no salvation. That's true. But we're talking about the church that's composed of the true believers, not just the husk on the outside. We must be joined to Jesus and love him ourselves and trust him ourselves. That's crucial. And if you do that, you're a member of the true church. The real bride. Not just the external manifestation of it. Third thing and then we're done. How is your relationship with the church? Are you vitally connected? Fully participating in the life and fellowship, the worship and ministry of the church? Because just like you can have all the external stuff and miss out on Jesus, our problem probably, uh, we might have that problem, but another problem we could have is the other way. Oh yeah, I've got Jesus and I don't need those people. I got Jesus, no church for me. Don't need them, it's just one big quiet time anyways. We're all just having one big quiet time, one big devotional, and no big deal. No, 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 no. Are you... If you have Christ, you will be part of the church. So we don't want to go wrong either way. Well, I've got the church, so I must have Jesus too. No. (laughs) Or, I've got Jesus and the church you can keep. Those people are not fun to be around anyways. Ugh. (laughs) Right? We can't go wrong on either of those ways. We have to avoid those two pitfalls... We do not have God as father if we do not have the church as mother. And outside this church, there is no salvation. That means we have to have a vital union with Jesus. He's our savior. He's our treasure. We love him. We're joined to him. We want him forever. Pearly gates you can keep. Streets of gold. Don't care. Give me Jesus. And if he's not there in heaven, I don't care to be there either. Right, That kind of love for Jesus. And then a love for the people he loves. That's your neighbors. Look around. Are you part of the real church? Are you connected to Jesus? Are you vitally connected and fully engaged in this local body? We need both. To be a whole church, you gotta have both. So let's check ourselves. Let's remind ourselves what the church really is. Let's think about how much Jesus loves it. And let's repent for not loving it like he does. But then let's not stay there and wallow. Let's get up and let's run forward and let's be the church that he's called us to be. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in our sin, but you sent the Lord Jesus to rescue and ransom us, to pay the price to have us with him forever, the cost of his own blood. You ransomed us from sin and bondage and death and the devil and the grave, and we will be yours forever. And I pray that we would have that love for you that your bride is supposed to have, that we would not make the mistake of thinking because we're in the right place with the right people, on the right day of the week, saying the right words and going through the right motions that therefore we're automatically in. No. Ritualism and traditionalism, all those other isms that blind us from the gospel, may we refuse those lies and may we close with Christ personally today. I am yours, you are mine. And then let us realize how much He loves the church and let us love the church too and let us be vitally connected and fully engaged in participating and loving each other and serving and honoring each other and repenting with each other and forgiving each other and being kind and serving and hospitable and honoring each other and all those multitudes of one another's we're called to do. Make us long to be the church that You call us to be. And then use us to do amazing things for your namesake, for your kingdom, and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.